Keen. And um, if you have not been with us uh, up until today, if you're new, welcome. We're, we're glad you're here. And if it's been a while, welcome back. Um, Romans 13 is not an unfamiliar sound to uh, our ears. It's a passage that's been quoted, uh, referenced, abused, applied extensively in these last 18 months as Canadian citizens and across actually North America especially. It's just been a very uh, heavily dealt with passage uh, for good and for, for bad. So I'm going to read Romans 13, 1 through 5, uh, 7. And again, this is just in the flow of our text. Uh, I could have jumped ahead and preached this last year, but really felt the Lord just rein me in and say, no, stick with the text. We've been in Romans for over a year. And so we are now coming to this passage. So if you're brand new here and you're thinking, oh, you know, I show up at this church and they're going to go swinging at Romans 13. We don't do it every week. And this is where we are in the text. And uh, I believe God is sovereign in whatever text he wants us to hear is the time that we need to hear it. So we're thankful for that. Romans 13, 1 through 7 reads like this. Every person is to be in subjugation to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which are established by God. Sorry, those which are, exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, verse 5, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to them what is due. Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Let's pray. God, give us now ears to hear from the throne room of God, from the very authoritative voice who spoke the creation into being, who reigns even now. And as we just sang, perfect submission, all is at rest. I am my Savior. I'm happy and blessed, Lord. Only you can command perfect submission. For you are good all the time and you never change. Your shadow never changes. Lord, we submit ourselves now to you and to this text. We submit ourselves asking for your help and wisdom in difficult times. So I'm going to cut to the chase. We can talk more about it after if I've missed something, but let's get to the chase. Uh, in recent days, in the last, I would say, 20 months, this verse, these verses have been absolutized in the life of the church. They have been absolutized, which means they are a verse which certainly give a command, they give a principle, and they give the theology behind it, and they have become absolutized, which means they have become pulled from the text and have become 
sufficient on their own to answer every question. In other words, to absolutize something means to remove from it any challenge, to remove from it any condition, to remove from it any possible nuance, as they say. And so it flattens every question under its own weight. That's what's happened in these last 18 months. Are Christians called to be subject to the government? Absolutely. Our church has been known in recent days for being in insubordination to certain parts or aspects of the civic government. So how do we square that? That might be the elephant in the room for you today. Maybe you want to answer your friends why it is that things are the way they are in your church or in your life. Hopefully this helps that. And so for, I hope, obvious reasons, we reject absolutizing any text, including this one. We don't absolutize any text. The only, the only texts that we might be able to utterly absolutize are from the psalm, like what we read in the psalms this morning, that the Lord reigns. There is no qualification to that. There is no caveat. There is no context to give greater clarity. Texts that speak of the character of God are absolute. And every other text must be understood in light of the whole wisdom and counsel of God. For obvious reasons, passages like this have to have, and even our opponents, I'll say, admit that this text must have some limitation. It must have some limit to the subordination and submission that you give to the government. Otherwise, when the government becomes ungodly, we would be forced as Christians to live incoherently. To regard God's commands at some point and the state's commands at other point, and we would have to find a way to sort of balance both. We looked last week or two weeks ago at chapter 12, verse 9, which says, Let love be without hypocrisy. So we've already been prohibited from living hypocritically. The scriptures have already told us that our Christian love must be consistent with all scriptural truth. And with our living, we can't live hypocritically. So if we say we believe something and the state demands that we live another way, we, we, we de facto don't have that option. Let love be without hypocrisy. And so as we look at this, we need to understand that whatever we do or don't do in relationship to the government, the civic government that is, it must be consistent with Christian ethics and doctrine, period. It has to be. We're not permitted to live inconsistently. We're not permitted to live hypocritically, although we all do at times. Let's not be, you know, let's not be proud. We all live hypocritically at times, but it's not a theological option. And if we find ourselves living hypocritically or inconsistently, then we submit ourselves to the scripture and say, how can we change that? So let's just go through this one verse at a time, and I'll close with some principles, applications. We'll praise God together again, and we'll have time for questions after if you'd like to ask any. Number one, verse one, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. This verse alone is a profound document for founding a nation. This passage alone gives wisdom for statecraft, for civic responsibility in a way that is unparalleled in any other tradition 
in the world. And, and this says so much more than it's been given, given credit in the last two years. Remember the context of the end of last week's sermon, if you can. Paul says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, never take your own revenge. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. So that may leave a, a person in general saying, but if I don't avenge my own assailant, who will? If I don't take revenge on somebody who's, you know, unjustly robbed me or has done undue harm to me or, you know, taken away my livelihood or, God forbid, even murdered somebody in my family. If I don't avenge them, who will? The Bible says, leave room for God. Does that mean some distant time in the future? Yes, but it also means today. Because the very next verse says, be subject to governing authorities. This is the role that God has given the state to play in civic society. Leave room for God's justice because God has not left the earth without justice in an earthly sense. To leave room for God's wrath against crime and sin. And to regard that role as the state. The state is the ranking class when it comes to punitive justice. That's what that means. To be in subjugation is not the same word as to obey. Children, obey your parents is not the same verb as be in subjugation to the government. It has to do with a ranking military class. So it is not blind obedience. It is not moral obedience. It is to regard as ranking. In other words, when the government exercises its role in this area, you must regard them as being put there by the general. He's not just some rogue dude swinging a sword around. This is God's minister for justice. So Christians are to regard institutions outside the church as given by God. In other words, we don't occupy a parallel world. We live in the real world where there, is, where there are other institutions with other roles in the same way that the church does not directly discipline children. That's a role given to the family and mom and dad. Okay, and I, I talked about this a few months ago that elders in the church do not police, thank God, the attire of the women in the church. That, you get into cult stuff really fast there when you lose sight of who's in charge of what. So to regard the state as authoritative is a Christian duty. So Paul assumes and presumes that all authority structures exist naturally because of God. They are built into creation. It's, it's just like gravity or supply and demand. They are just there. Authority cannot be flattened. It cannot be done away with. It cannot be destroyed. It will pop up in some form. Authority is a natural structure built into creation, put there by God. And like anything, it can be exploited for good or for ill. So when you see authority abusing its role, you don't say, well, that's God's will. That's, that's what God, you know, he's chosen that person to do that evil. No, you say that the, the authoritative structure is put there by God and it's being abused in the same way that a father whose strength and influence over children is given to lead them in the truth, he may abuse that and lead his children astray or even harm them 
with that same strength that is designed to protect them. We can see abuses of structures everywhere, but it doesn't mean we do away with the structure. So governing authorities, civic magistrates, are given by God for a real function in the world. And we couldn't do without them. That's what the scriptures say here. He says that all authority structures are established by God. They didn't just arise out of a, a contract like the English philosophers would say. Oh, it's just a social contract. We've just decided that someone needs to be in charge. No, God established governing structures. And Jesus said as much to Pilate when Pilate tried to intimidate him. When Pilate wasn't getting the answer that Jesus, uh, out of Jesus that he wanted, he said, do you not understand that I have the authority to hand you over? And Jesus is like, let me give you a little civics lesson here, Pilate. My father gave you that authority. You would not have an ounce, a shred of authority. You think you get your authority from Caesar? Your authority comes from my father. My father is the author of authority. He bestows it and dispenses it by his sovereign will. A friend told me once uh, in regards to what we're doing uh, with our church and, uh, you know, let's say, let's say no more lockdowns or whatever it is that we've been doing uh, as a family. Um, we need to submit to the government because Jesus did. Jesus went to Pilate and he submitted himself to Pilate. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Read the whole text. Jesus submitted to his father in the garden before he encountered Pilate. Jesus' submission was to God and to God's plan. Pilate's authority, in a sense, was merely administrative. Pilate was just signing the document that God had ordained to be done in the life of Christ. So when, when you say Jesus submitted to Pilate so we should, we miss the fact that Jesus rebukes Pilate for asserting his own authority over Jesus. Jesus says, my submission to you has nothing to do with your authority. It has everything to do with God's sovereign plan for my life. And so many take this passage to mean, look how big and powerful the government is. They, we we're called to submit to them. But we need to recognize in the first century, this is written in the context of the Caesars, who demanded that Christians confess Caesar as Lord. So when you read this and you, re and you see, hey, you know, who's, you know Caesar? His authority is subject to God's. It had a radically different effect on the first century uh, pagan world who believed that the Caesars were gods, which is why the Psalms say, worship him, O you gods. These lesser idolatrous beings who commanded worship, this scripture come along, comes along and says, God has subjugated you to him. You are living in God's world and you are abusing your own authority. So we, we read this upside down in a, in a post sort of Christian status Society, we say, look how powerful the government is. No, look how limited the government is. That it is that even the government, who claims godlike powers, is subject to God. Now, you say, well, you're getting really off on, a, on an aggressive foot here, Tim. Let's keep going. Verse two. Sorry, but I will say, any discussion of the state subjugation submission that does not recognize God's authority over it is doomed from the start. And that's how Paul begins. Look at all authority. It is subject to God. And he gets more specific about how it is subject to God and how we should respond in light of that. Number two, verse two. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they will receive, those who oppose will receive condemnation upon themselves. So number two, do not regard flippantly the authority of the state. 
The state as an institution has gravity. It has a significant and God-given role in society. We don't believe in libertarianism as Christians. We believe in a more libertarian view of society as compared to where we are. But we don't believe in libertarianism per se. You know, there shouldn't be traffic lights. There should be no courts. You know, no, don't avenge yourself, but leave room for God's wrath in the justice of the state. So we should treat with respect and allow the government to work imperfectly as it does. The state has a role and it is run by people who are just like, unfortunately for you and me, just like you and me. The state is not occupied by people on some higher moral plane who have got it all figured out and who never err. They are humans, many of them who don't know the living God. And they are not carrying out their roles the way that God would command. But the institution that they hold is God-given. The role that they play, the office that they bear, is something we should regard for God's sake, to demonstrate God's good order in creation. We don't overthrow the office because the bearer, the office bearer, is a fool. We regard with gravity and honor those who hold the office. And this has been a maybe a struggle in Canada for the last six years. Not naming any names. But it is difficult to give honor to those who hold office who behave as fools. But even though we oppose morally and theologically and even practically a lot of what's going on, we give due honor to the ones who occupy the office. We do not speak ill. We do not. We looked at the imprecatory psalms a few weeks ago. We do not speak curses upon those. We do not curse them or condemn them. We might pray that their power be stripped or overthrown. And we may even vote to that end. But we certainly do not regard flippantly the, the authority of the state. It is a God-given institution. Sometimes in the church, we might think pridefully of other institutions. Well, they don't... They don't have the Holy Spirit, or they don't have, you know, us, or they don't have, you know, the, the Word of God. And so the church is really the be-all and end-all of all things in life. And churches can, kind of, churches can become authoritarian in that view, where they want to become the, the overseers of everything in your family. There was a movement a couple of years ago called, years ago called the, the Heavy Shepherding Movement or something weird like that, where, like, elders would come into the, and, like, order your finances and, you know, literally, you know, pick your outfits and make decisions for you. I don't know, crooked eyebrows there. That's right. You can see how the, the church is not the only institution in the world. We are the pillar and buttress of the truth, but we are not to be everything to everyone. The church has a role to play in civic society like every other um, institution. We need to recognize also that the church has a role to play and a mission, and so does the civic government. They have a God-given ministry in the world. This is why we call in Canada them ministers. The prime minister, his cabinet is full of ministry positions. The ministry of public education, or education, the minister of justice, the minister of, and, now, and they've perverted this idea, we have ministers of things that are totally outside the scope of their calling, but nonetheless, they have a role to play. But we need to recognize that when it says whoever resists authority, we are speaking of the institution, we're not speaking of the man. How many, whose mayor is Sean Pankow? Because we're in Smith Falls right now. There's a few of you whose mayor is Sean Pankow. If Sean Pankow met you at Fruit Basics, 
and said, hey, as mayor, I'm requiring you to pay for my groceries. I don't think there's a single, well, maybe some of you would because you're, you want to be a witness or you want to bless him. But by virtue of the command, would you respond and say, well, I am a citizen here, you know? No, you would, you would rightfully recognize that as outside of the office he, uh, he bears. So that would not be what the Bible considers resisting authority. If you met somebody on the street and they just demanded something of you, hey, give me your wallet. You know, you're on your way to Tim Hortons in the morning and somebody says, hey, you know, give me your wagon or give me your car. or I want that bicycle or, hey, you need to come over to my house and clean my, uh, clean my kitchen. It's just absurd. We just keep walking. That's not resisting authority, even if it was Justin Trudeau meeting us on the street and making those demands. It's just it's outside of the authority God has given them. And we understand that intuitively. So I want you to understand you already know this stuff intuitively. So don't be deceived when people try to fleece you and pull the wool over your eyes and, and, and gaslight you into some absurd application of this text. You already understand this intuitively. So, getting a little bit more specific, the state does have some interest in public health. You look at the Levitical law, there were commands in Leviticus for dealing with public health crises. It did, it did involve quarantine. It did involve wearing certain attire that would demonstrate your contamination, whether it's leprosy or what have you. You would wear ripped clothing and you would actually maintain physical distancing and, and you would signal that by your, your sackcloth or your torn clothing. You would signal your infectious condition. It would, it would warn other people. It was a way of loving one's neighbor according to the law, which we know that that's what neighborly love is. It's application of the law in their lives. And so the Bible has rules for um, dealing with a public health crisis. And the state has an interest in that. The state cannot maintain a standing army if the standing army is contaminated with leprosy. 20% of its standing army has leprosy. The state has an interest in public health. I, wanna, I do want to acknowledge that. So if somebody entered here and said, you know, the Richter scale in Ottawa is going off and there's about to be a, a eight magnitude earthquake come through here. Take cover, get up from under this, whatever. We would intuitively trust and, and follow the warnings of the state. We wouldn't pull out our little pocket Richter scales and pull up our Google Maps and we would just intuitively act assuming the best. And this is why in 2020, when there was a, you know, a tsunami of COVID coming and uh, videos of people literally dropping in the streets and Italy was carting off coffins by the truckload. And they said, you know, something serious is coming. We responded generally accepting that warning. And, um, you know, as it came to Canada and cases went up, we sort of got a feel for what things were happening. And then we took sort of a Levitical, a, a priestly role with the way the Levites did because the priests were actually, did most of the medical um, decisions in, in ancient Israel. So as elders, we sort of looked at the situation and said, well, I think we can at least get together the three of us or four of us. So we began meeting in person and we began inviting people who wanted to come. We didn't shame people. And we said, if you feel comfortable, you're welcome to come and meet us in the little boardroom for worship. And the church grew from there and here we are today. So the state has an interest in public health, but they do not have the authority to uh, force healthy people to wear torn clothing and maintain physical distancing. It's not biblical. Okay, so they do have a role, and re resisting absurd commands 
is not resisting authority per se as Romans 13 lays out. If you resist authority, we are speaking in terms of what is coming next. Verse 3, understand the purpose of state authority. The purpose of state authority is to divide. Very, This is critical. This is the center of the sermon. This is what makes everything else make sense. You could reasonably rebut anything I've said up until this point if what I'm about to say is not true. If what I'm about to say is not true, the last 24 minutes have been a waste of your time. Because you can interpret those first two verses in a lot of different ways if verse 3 is not here. So let's get verse 3 right. Four. In other words, everything I've said up until now hangs on what I'm about to say, Paul says. Verse 3. Four. Because this is why you should listen and obey the first two verses the way that you have. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. That's why we can interpret the first two verses the way we just have. The state is not designed or called or commissioned to intimidate or alienate people who do good. The state is not designed to intimidate or alienate people who do good. This, which should be Christians. Christians, the same good works that we are called to do, the state is called to recognize. There's no division. There's no moral code for public life and a moral code for private life. Christians, we get the Bible. That's how we find out what's good and evil. And the state, well, they do a public poll. No. The same good works that the church is called to are the same good works that the state is called to recognize. Being subject to the state is not hard for a Christian when the state is doing what it ought and you are doing what you ought. The state and the church are not at odds. The state and the church are after the same thing, biblical morality. <gasps> I thought we were pluralistic. What about multiculturalism? You've been fed a lie. The state is not called to uphold the rights and freedoms of every religious viewpoint. It has not been tasked with that. And an attempt to do that is an invitation to chaos. And guess what? We are living in that chaos. It's 50 years almost to the day that Pierre Trudeau declared multiculturalism an official uh, state policy. And we are reaping the fruits of that now. It is chaos for the state to affirm everybody's insane religious views. That doesn't mean the state should lock people up in jail for not being Christians. That's not what that means. But the state recognizes one moral code. It cannot uphold two different moral codes. And this is why governments that are addicted to this multicultural idea are incoherent and they're giving up their own sovereignty. You go to England and there are Sharia law courts that operate sovereignly on British soil. If you want to find out what uh, draconian justice is, go read Sharia law. It's not just, it is not biblical, it is not fair, but England recognizes it. Why? Because multiculturalism. The state is demanded and called by God not as a cause of fear for good behavior, but of evil. This is, friends, if you ever hear the word theonomy, this is what we're referring to. This is one aspect of theonomy, where the state, as well as the church, 
is called to recognize Christian morality. This is God's will for all governments everywhere in all time. Okay? It doesn't mean democracy versus monarchy. It's fear God and reward evil. A monarchist can be a wonderful form of government if it is God-fearing and subject to God in the same way that a parliament should be subject to God. The problem is now that our democracy, hailed as the great victory of the West, is now subject to a pagan mob. So they're not subject to God. And so we see a corruption of political systems. The state is called to give fear to what? Evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then don't do evil. This is why laws uh, defending, uh, protecting self-defense exist, by the way. Because the, the moral code is not flat and, and lifeless. So one person's murder is another person's self-defense, depending on the context of the situation. If you've been following the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, he was acquitted, though he killed two other people. Because the evidence demonstrated that he was not the aggressor. So the state does not punish behavior that is not evil. The state has determined in his case that the killings that he committed were not evil. We say, oh, it's a loss of life. Yes, but lives are not equally weighted in terms of justice because of the morality that they carry. So the lives of evildoers are not avenged in the same way as the lives of the just. This is biblical morality. This is why Christians can affirm things like capital punishment. Not because we delight in death, but because the Bible prescribes it and it is a form of justice carried out by the state. It's not personal vengeance. The state is not called to personal forgiveness. You are. If somebody murders a, a member of your family, you are called to forgive that person. You are called to feed them, if possible, even in prison. Visit them. Pray for them. The state is not called to that same duty. The state has a different role. It is to put fear in the heart of the evildoer. The Bible says if, you, if you're having trouble with the state constantly, you can change that very easily. Stop doing evil stuff. Stop committing evil acts. The state has been adorned by God. We're going to get to that in the next verse, but Paul says very clearly, if you have fear in your conscience or if your life has been interfered with by the state, then maybe it's because you're living on the margins of the law. Maybe you're living immorally and you need to get on the righteous path. There's a saying that I've come to appreciate in the last two years, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. You go do evil things and bad things happen. That's God saying, look, this is the way life works. There are people out there who are going to punish evil. And in the case of some situations, when the state won't do it, even in the United States, there are, there are legal provisions for the citizenry filling in for the state where the state refuses to enforce justice. That's a different topic. But in other words, the state is bound by the same standards and morals and commands that Christians are. That's the point of verse 3. The state does not have a code outside of the scriptures. Rulers do not cause fear for good behavior. So if you're a, a good person, you should have no fear of the state. Why is it then that as a church, we had to hide our location and meet in secret a lot of the times during this pandemic? 
Is church evil? Is worshiping God evil? Why were we living in fear? Is it because we were doing something wrong or the state was doing something wrong? What does the text say? The state is not a cause of fear for those who do good. Okay. State is God's servant. Verse 4. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger of those, uh, sorry, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So this is not a, a great gigantic leap here. If the state is, is commanded to live according to the same standard as Christians are, to uphold the same standard, then it's not a far stretch to say, to go further and say the state is actually a servant of God. The, the word there is the same word for a deacon in the church. The state is God's servant, enlisted by God for a particular task. Friends, this is what, this is what it, when we say theonomy, this is what we mean. People can scare you with all kinds of visions of what theonomy is. We've talked about this in the Bible study, but this is what it means. The state is a servant of God, just like you are a servant of God, just like your family is a servant of God. It is a deacon of God, but for a particular person, uh, purpose. If you do what is evil, be afraid. The state is designed to make evil people feel afraid and to let good people rest easy. That's the state's job. To make it easy to live as a righteous person and to make it very difficult to live as an unjust person or an evil person. That's the state's job as a servant of God. This fear is God's design. God wants people who do evil to live in immediate fear. Not just future judgment fear, which we can maybe, you know, we can drink that away or we can, you know, wish that away. But no, a legitimate earthly fear that if you're doing wrong, that you have immediate fear. People say you can't legislate morality. That is one of the most misleading statements you'll ever hear. Morality is all you can legislate. You can't legislate the heart, what the heart does, but what you can legislate is what people do. And if you're the state, that's a good thing. I hear people say all the time, well, if you make a law against adultery, it's not going to make anybody not do it. But that's not the point. Because the law, the Bible says, is a teacher. The law teaches us what is right and what is wrong. It is a moral precept. Every document is a moral document. Every law is a moral document. And if you think that you can't legislate morality, I'll tell you, the left does believe that they can. And what we do on Sunday mornings within nine months from now will be punishable from imprisonment. Put that as a prediction if you want. Put it as, you know, whatever you want. But that's the fact. The left is legislating morality. And they're abusing they're neglecting the sword that God gives them and they're wielding it against the wrong people. They're taking a sword and they're pointing it at those who are doing good, the exact opposite of their calling. You should be terrified of falling into the hands of the state for your evil deeds, not for your good deeds. The state is not a hall pass monitor. Somebody who scolds you on the way by for running. The state has a sword. The state's punitive right is serious, which is why there, there are many times we say the state should not be doing certain things because their only way to enforce it is with the sword. 
This is why you shouldn't make education mandatory at the state level. Because the only tool they have is a sword. Okay, and so you're using a sword to punish things that are not evil or good. You can see how it gets mixed up really quick when the state becomes too large. So the ultimate question for the state and what they need from us is how do we decide who to punish and who to reward? That's the, that's the golden question. That's the million dollar question for the state. You know, you, you win an election, you get your, your prime minister's office. Lord willing, maybe one of you one day will sit in that office. Say, okay, got to get to work. First question you should ask is, who should we reward and who should we punish? Governing is ultimately a question of that. It is a question of who do we lay the hammer down and who do we live, give a break? And when that becomes mixed up, you have a very mixed up society because the evildoers get to run free with a clean conscience and the ones who do good live in fear and often in the underground. That's not a place where I would wish my neighbors to live. So he's talking about loving your neighbor. Help establish a good society for them to live in. And so I would ask, you know, I, I got to meet with uh, some of the pastors who were, uh, one pastor who spent 21 days in jail in Canada. I got to meet with him this past week, Tim Stevens. And I tell you, I, I seldom have met a more godly man. He puts me to utter shame. His character, his sweetness, his devotion to the Lord, his, his love for his family. He's got eight children. He brought two of them with him to this conference I was at. Can you imagine a scenario where God would affirm the state for putting a man like that in prison for preaching the word of God? There is no scenario on this earth where God would approve of that. Who do we punish and who do we reward? That's the question for the state. So there are two outcomes regarding state authority. Verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience sake. Those are the two things Paul just brought up. Because of wrath, if you're not subject to the state, you're going to run into fines. You're going to run into prison. You're going to run into trouble. You're going to run into the wrath of the state, which is enforcing morality. You don't pay your taxes, you will run into wrath. So that's number one. I mean, personal life has troubles enough of its own, right? You add jail into that mix, you add court dates into that mix, and life gets really tricky. Your private life has enough issues on its own. Don't go running into the state because of your own evil. I think it's Peter who said it's better to suffer for doing right than for doing wrong. Because if you suffer for doing wrong, it's your own fault. So don't do it. It is necessary to be subject to the state because of wrath, number one, and two, because of a clean conscience. In other words, you get to live a peaceful life. You're not worried about a, a drug search. You're not worried about uh, you know, a CRA audit. If you're living in subjection to the state, your conscience is clear. You're not thinking about the state constantly. So be subject to the government in its rightful place because you don't want the state's sword coming down on you and you don't want to live in fear. There's a proverb that says the, the righteous are bold as lion and the wicked flee when no one pursues. That's called a bad conscience. When you're constantly looking over your shoulder, it's because you have a bad conscience. You're doing something that's wrong and, you, and you're worried that sometimes it's going to be caught up caught up with you. <clears throat> Number six, they need funding. Very basic. 
Uh, verse 6, because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God. Christians do not live outside of the system in that, well, we don't need to pay taxes, you know, because we, we give you know, to God what belongs to him. But Jesus also said, but also give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You know why? Because a police force is expensive. It's expensive to have an army that defends your borders. So pay your taxes. In the same way, if you don't pay a preacher, you don't get the word of God. If you don't pay your police force, you get no justice. I mean, remember the defund the police movement? Remember how short that lasted? Minneapolis tried to defund the police and crime immediately started going up and residents were complaining and city council approved a $6 million increase in funding. You can't defund the police. Give taxes to where taxes owed. Pay your taxes. We're not... We're not scofflaws, we're not libertarians, we're keep your hands off me. We are integrated with the state at some level in an important way. So I'm going to close with some principles. The government, number one, exists because of God. It exists because of God. It's there because God made it. Okay, not because of colonialism, not because of, you know, this or that. And every government has pluses and negatives and none of them are perfect. I think Winston Churchill had some witty things to say about democracy, and I would actually disagree with him that that's the best form of government, because in the days when he was governing, people had a lot more grip on Christian ethics. So democracy was actually good because the government was held to Christian standards from the people. Anyway, the government exists because of God, and it must align with God. Our obedience to the state must align with our obedience to God. The apostle said in Acts chapter 4, whether it is right for you, when they were commanded not to preach, whether it is right for you, for us to stop or not, you can decide. You can think whatever you want about our ministry. But as for us, we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. We must obey God rather than men. The apostles said, well, if it comes down to it, i got to pick one. I can't live hypocritically. I can't live dualistically. The state must align to God. But not to the person ultimately, but to the office and I would ask the question, who's going to tell them? If the state is required to align with God's purposes, who's going to tell them that? You, you forget the fact that we have the book. So we don't run the government, the church per se. We're not an ecclesiocracy. But we have the book that tells them how to do it. How are they going to do it if we're submitting to every wicked ordinance and living in fear for doing good? How is the state ever going to know what they're supposed to do? Do you want to know what the Great Commission says? Go into all nations and disciple them, disciple the nations, which includes the state government, which includes the courts, it includes families. Disciple the nations. Number two, no obedience to any authority can be absolute without that authority becoming an idol. If Caesar is given the authority to redefine gender, to redefine marriage, to mandate how your kids are educated, the, the right over life and death itself what has that Caesar become? It has become God. You cannot give to the civic authority all authority and it not become a God. And incidentally, who suffers most in idolatry? Children. Children, 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 children suffer the most in idolatry. Moloch worship, child sacrifice. We have a thriving Moloch worship here in Canada. A thriving Moloch worship. Children in the public school system are corrupted and, and caused to stumble in light of our idolatrous visions of sexuality. 
Number three, a good culture must be informed by biblical ethics. And we must demonstrate those ethics by abhorring what is evil in them. A couple applications now, and I'm done. Number one, it should be uncontroversial to Christians that the church continue to meet, sing, take the Lord's table, pray for the sick during every single lockdown. Now, those days are kind of ending, um, including hospitality and works of charity among your neighbors. Um, but just because COVID uh, lockdowns may be ending doesn't mean that that principle doesn't stand. Number two, when the state demands that you refrain from good works or worship, you ignore them. This is the same state that during a lockdown would refuse an elderly woman a visit from her family but they, for her safety, but they will grant her the right to death. They'll give her euthanasia. They'll kill her rather than allowing her the personal risk of catching a virus that may kill her. They would rather see her certainly die than possibly die if it's outside of their edict. So when the state demands evil things, you ignore them, period. There's an application for you. Uh, number three, we are well beyond debating the church's particular response to government restrictions. Um, because we are entering days where we've, we've got to get this, we've got to get this down. We don't, we don't have more time for dealing with this. Uh, there are much more sinister and long-term edicts coming with likewise criminal implications. Um, we're going to see carbon lockdowns, I would say within the year, within two years, we're going to see carbon lockdowns. Okay, it's going to have the same effect as COVID. The church is going to have the same debate over and over again if they haven't dealt with this. Well, the environment, surely preserving the environment is a Christian duty. Not if it violates our command to worship God. Uh, we're going to see social credit systems. We're going to see social and sexual um, criminalization. Okay, so this is not going anywhere. It's just going to shift forms. And if we don't know what God commands of the state, we will become statists. We will become uh, swallowed by the state um, ideology and we'll become state parrots. We'll just repeat the state lines and they'll say, look, the church agrees with us. And I close with this. I close with this, and then we'll sing. We have no more time as the church to entertain, to entertain evasive, pietistic, and cowardly abuses of texts like this. These, these abuses are nothing more than a desperate attempt to maintain favor in the world. That's what they are. Submit to the government, do whatever the government says, because then no one will bother us. They will not be satisfied with your offering of peace. So just get it right in the first place and don't waste time doing that. Again, this is not to flippantly cast off the government. It's to say we have to interpret the text with gravity, that it is, it is, it is accountable to God. These... These uh, vain and shallow applications of the text, they imprison the Christian witness voluntarily. They imprison Christian obedience to God. And almost equally as bad, but not quite, is the empowering and growth of the authoritarian tyranny in our time. You don't love your neighbor by submitting to tyranny. You do not love your children by submitting to tyranny because you endorse it and you empower it and you feed it. The government is not given carte blanche in Romans 13. It is given a standard. 
And this is the standard, and we teach them. Not through rebellion, not through revolution, but through reformation. And reformation begins with right action. I can say this with confidence that most of you I know agree and our eldership agrees that we will not submit to the yoke of state idolatry by granting obedience and allegiance that we owe to God alone. We will not submit to the yoke of state idolatry by granting obedience and allegiance that we owe to God alone. 